stillness. Surround them with supportive families, friends, and communities. Hold their hands and walk with them as they begin their grieving journey. For those who are injured, we pray for healing and recovery. On their long and challenging road to recovery ahead, both physically and emotionally, we pray for your presence to be unceasingly with them. May your everlasting joy, hope, and the power of healing be with them every day. As about 400 wildfires continue to rage on across Canada, we continue to pray for the firefighters, police officers, and all other personnel participating in the effort to keep the fires under control. Please give them strength, perseverance, and proper rest. We pray for the residents in British Columbia, Alberta, Nova Scotia, Quebec, and parts of Ontario who had to flee their homes to escape the fires. Many of them lost their homes and much of what they have. We pray that you keep them safe. Surround them with people who will provide a helping hand to take them in and walk with them on their long road of rebuilding their lives. Give them peace and comfort as they experience so much loss. Help us to give generously, both in finances and in action. And we pray for proper control of the wildfires Please continue to grant wisdom to all Canadians and global citizens on the urgency of climate change. And guide the leaders and policymakers on ways to more effectively manage your creative forests in the future. As Torontonians head to the poll to elect our next mayor, we pray for wisdom in understanding the platforms of each candidate and choose one who will have the wisdom and cap capability to tackle some of the most pressing issues facing Torontonians, such as affordable housing, living costs, the environment, public safety, and, tra and traffic. We pray for all the candidates. May you guide them, lead them, and teach them. May you give them a true compassion and passion for the city and prudence to enact policies that will provide substantial help to those who are vulnerable, marginalized, and suffering. May you surround them with wise and honest advisors. May they be open to your prompting and make their decision with a sense of morality, compassion, righteousness, and genuine servanthood. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Spring Garden family and for their friends and families who are afflicted with illnesses, adversity, financial hardships, relationship challenges, mental and emotional distress. Life can be filled with so much challenges and sorrow, and it is so overwhelming. Indeed, for many of us, our tears have been our food day and night, and our bodies are wasted away from grief. We feel utterly helpless and alone. We pray for mercy, grace, and deliverance. Please deliver those who are suffering from illnesses. Give them healing. Please restore those who are broken. Make them whole again. Please provide for those who are needy. Offer assistance from our church family. 
Please rescue those who are spiritually downcasted. Give them listening ears, understanding hearts, and everlasting peace. Lord, please help us to trust in you, O Lord, to say you are our God, our Father. Our times are in your hand. Deliver us from afflictions. In you, O Lord, we have taken refuge. Let us never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver us. Incline your ear to us. Rescue us quickly. Be to us a rock of strength, a stronghold to save us. May your face shine upon us. Save us in your and your people's loving kindness. We pray all these in the loving, merciful, and powerful name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we uh, continue with singing a song of uh, hope in what God is doing now and will do in the future, I invite you, if you are able, uh, please stand with us. Oh, 
invite you to be seated. Our scripture reading today is Psalm 1, and it is on page 431 of your Pew Bibles. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Good morning, everyone. It's so wonderful to be worshipping with you here today. Um, Before we begin, I would just like to open with a word of prayer. God, we invite your presence here today, aware that you are already here. We pray that you would open our hearts, make our ears receptive, to the words that you will speak to us. God, may my words be your words. And may may it be your truth that is spoken today. In your name we pray. Amen. So earlier this year, my husband Ben and I spent some time with my brother-in-law, my sister-in-law, and their three children. Given that we don't get to see them all that often, we committed to spoiling them with a choice breakfast of waffles, pancakes, and French toast. Now, everything was going exactly to plan. The sweet aroma of the cinnamon was wafting through the air, the crisp sizzle of the French toast hitting the pan was resounding in our ears. The kids were jumping around in excited anticipation already tucking into the whipped cream can. And the table was set with everything we needed to make this a delicious breakfast extravaganza. Well, that was until I realized that we didn't have maple syrup. (laughs) I can still hear my nephew's puzzled question. How can we have waffles and pancakes without maple syrup? Now, there was no time to run to the store. Everything had been cooked. It was hot. We were setting the table when we realized it. And so Ben's unusual preference for table syrup came in handy 
because it turns out that kids quite enjoy sugary liquid goop. <laughs> now, they became this running joke because they were a little skeptical of the table syrup initially. And so Ben had to try and convince them that it would be okay. And he said, don't worry, we don't have the real maple syrup, but we have the good stuff. This is the good stuff. Now you can take this up with him during coffee time if you would like. But I started to think about this. My, oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> Fast forward to a few weeks ago. Our family are down for a visit and we we're having a similar kind of breakfast. This time I made sure we had maple syrup though. As we sat down to eat, my sister-in-law went, she handed the maple syrup to my nephew and he said, no, 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 mom. I don't want the real maple syrup, I want the good stuff. <laughs> now this is a, certainly quite an amusing story and to be honest, it's rather adorable. My five-year-old nephew was able to remember this catchphrase and then use it appropriately. But I thought about this more I, I, as I pondered how he made this distinction because between what is real and what is good. I started to think about how that's true of our culture. That somehow, somewhere, we have convinced ourselves that what is not real is good. We've been going through a series called The Goodness of God. As the people of God, we not only believe that God is good, but that we're called to reflect God's goodness in the way that we live. As a way of framing what this goodness looks like, we've spent, times, we've spent time looking at a book titled A Church Called Tov, Tov being the Hebrew word for good. In this book, authors Scott McKnight and Laura Barringer suggest seven habits of goodness which make up what they call the circle of Tov. They assert that all churches must seek to increasingly embody these habits of goodness if they desire to create a culture which reflects the goodness of God. So far, we've covered six of them. That is, empathy as a way of resisting narcissism, grace as a way of resisting fear, a people-centered orientation as a way of resisting institution creep, truth-telling as a way of resisting false narratives, justice as a way of resisting oppressive systems, and service as a way of resisting celebrity culture. Today we will be concluding by looking at the seventh habit of goodness, Christ-likeness. McKnight and Barringer define Christ-likeness Christ as being conformed to Christ. That is, it is the process of becoming more like Christ. In one sense, then, we've been talking about Christ-likeness throughout this entire sermon series. For in being exhorted to nurture the habits of goodness on this chart, we have, in essence, been exhorting one another to Christ-likeness. 
Think about it. Jesus was certainly empathetic and gracious. He always prioritized people over institutions. He boldly spoke the truth. He sought after justice for the oppressed. And he served all people with humility and authenticity. Jesus is undoubtedly the epitome of goodness. Now, in the passage that was just read for us, the psalmist describes two people, one who embodies a similar kind of goodness to what we see in the person of Jesus, and another who reflects the exact opposite. The psalm opens by describing the good actions of a righteous person, presenting them in a way that is twofold. We read, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. First one offers an image of resistance whereby the righteous person refuses to conform to the ways of the wicked person. They don't walk or stand or sit in the way that sinners take, in the way that the wicked take. They resist that lifestyle. Immediately following this, in verse 2, the psalmist writes that instead of indulging in this evil lifestyle, instead, the righteous person actively pursues goodness, by delighting in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. Now, I want to take a quick moment to just talk about this in verse 2 and what the psalmist actually means here. Because oftentimes, when we hear about the law and we think about the law, we're thinking about the list of things that God told the Israelite people that they should and shouldn't do, right? And so when we hear that, we're like, delight in the law? Like, I grew up, and it was always the running joke, like, oh, who's read Leviticus? No one wants to read Leviticus, right? It's a book of laws. That's not something that we want to delight in. But the Hebrew word used here is the word Torah. And Torah actually means instruction. Now, when we think about God's instruction, God's instruction certainly incorporates the law that we find in the Old Testament scriptures. But it's so much more than that. It's God's words spoken to his people. It is good. It is, it is his love put in words and said to his people. Hence why the psalmist says we can delight in it. There is something beautiful about the God of the universe who does not need us choosing to speak to us to show us the way that is good. So if we come back to these two verses, 
and we look at them together, we see that there is a cultivation of goodness that comes from resisting and from embracing. Both of these things have to be held together. Now, if you think of it like planting a vegetable garden, right? If you just weed out the weeds and you don't plant seeds, it would be ludicrous to think that plants would grow, that vegetables would grow. And if we just plant seeds around the weeds and we don't actually take the weeds out, before long, the vegetables that sprout will just be, the life will be taken out of them by the life-sucking weeds. Both weeding and planting have to be done together in the same way we have to resist that which is not good and embrace that which is good. That is what it means to nurture goodness, to nurture Christ-likeness. Now, the person who intentionally and consciously acts and responds in ways that nurture this goodness is called blessed. We may quickly gloss over this description, simply seeing it as an encouragement for a person who does care about doing good things and resisting that which is not good. But if we pause to consider the implication of calling this person blessed, it's, it likely won't take us very long to realize how insultingly simplistic it is. The psalmist seems to be stating in no uncertain terms that if one does what is good and resists what is evil, they will be blessed. But if you take the briefest glance at the world around us, it will become immediately apparent that such an assertion contradicts reality entirely. Communities of people lose their homes and livelihoods and lives because of uncontrollable weather phenomena and natural disasters. Innocent victims suffer at the hands of oppressors and children are born into poverty because of no wrong of their own. Good people bear the burdensome weight of experiences which include grief, displacement, and health complications. We have individuals and groups who are detested and marginalized and abused simply because of their race, their gender, their mental or physical ability, or their sexual orientation. The world simply does not operate according to the principle that good things happen to good people. But isn't that what the psalmist is saying? It seems as though he's off his knocker, so out of touch with reality that he has no problem making naive claims which claim naive claims which ignore and dismiss the undeserved pain and unjust suffering of so many people in our world today. The image of the tree in verse 3, however, helps to shed light 
on this and show that this is not actually what the psalmist is trying to say. Now, I realize that as we read this description of the tree, we have that person, the blessed person, is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. We hear this description, and you might be thinking, this is an image of a fruitful, evergreen tree located beside flowing streams of refreshing water. Does this not simply perpetuate the same shallow notions of blessing and prosperity? The same narrative that good things happen to good people? After all, it sounds like a more peaceful and inviting image. Unfortunately, our English translations have failed to reflect what this image is actually trying to communicate. That is, it is a picture of formation and growth amidst intense trauma and disillusionment not a picture of superficial happiness or prosperity. A number of commentators have suggested that Psalm 1 was written during the period when God's people, having had their homeland invaded, their cities flattened, and many of their loved ones killed, found themselves forcibly carried off into exile by their Babylonian conquerors. There are two main reasons for why these commentators will place this passage in that context. The first is the Hebrew word for planted actually means transplanted, thereby suggesting that the tree in question has been uprooted and then replanted in a different location. Not unlike God's people who were forcibly moved from their homeland and had to settle in a different country. The second reason for locating Psalm 1 in the context of exile is that the word translated as stream does not refer to a natural stream, but a man-made stream or a canal, something that was very common in Babylon during this time. It's almost as though the psalmist is trying to describe a picture of God's people, that they were uprooted from the plains of Judah and transplanted beside canals in Babylon. With these things in mind, perhaps a more accurate translation would be that person is like a tree transplanted beside canals of water which yield its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. The psalmist is therefore not trying to depict a tranquil or picture-perfect scene, which, might, um, which we might imagine when first reading this verse. Rather, he's presenting us with the scene that is underscored by unimaginable suffering. And yet, There is hope and goodness in spite of this suffering. Even in the most horrific 
of circumstances. We can experience the blessing of formational growth whereby we become more like Christ. We are conformed to the image of Christ. Though pain may appear to deform us, we can not fully understand how God mysteriously transforms that pain and transforms us and increases our capacity for his presence in our lives. Like a tree which endures seasons of drought and flood, of winter and summer, of pruning, producing, and picking, we too will face seasons of joy and sorrow, of celebration and disappointment, of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And like a tree which, in spite of these different seasons, continues to experience life when it is planted beside water and grounded, we too will experience life-giving formation when we are slowly transformed to become more like Christ. We intentionally and consciously seek to ground ourselves in God, who is not only good, but who empowers us as his children to nurture this goodness. Nevertheless, there is something inherently uncomfortable about associating blessing with suffering, particularly because we've limited our understanding of blessing to material wealth, physical health, and personal success and happiness. It is here that we come to the crux of the matter, because when we confine our definition of blessedness to these things, to material wealth, to personal health, and happiness, we communicate and give substance to an increasing and exceedingly toxic narrative. Namely, that a person's worth is determined by and dependent on their capacity to produce something valuable or to perform perfectly. We say either implicitly or explicitly that one must comprehensively prove their blessedness in order to be accepted and considered worthy of love. What's so dangerous about operating according to this narrative and specifically according to the cultural values of productivity and perfectionism, is that its toxicity is hidden behind many layers of goodness. External measures of success, achievement, and productivity, like increasing numbers on Sunday morning, or a rapidly expanding budget, or the growing likability of the pastoral team, or the multiplication of a discipleship program, all these, theme, all these things which we deem to be good are in fact not good. They lack depth, they lack goodness, they lack authenticity. 
They are like the chaff that is blown away. In verse 4, we read that the wicked are like chaff. Chaff was the part of the grain that when it was thrown up, the wind would blow it away because it was light. It carried no weight. And when we rely on these things that appear to be good, but in reality lack depth and realness and goodness, we too will be like that chaff that is just blown away. That when things get tough, when we experience being uprooted and replanted and we have to learn how to grow in a new environment, we need to make sure that we're relying on things that are actually good. That we are saying, not this is the good stuff, so we will seek this, but this is the real stuff which is actually good, so we will seek this, we will nurture this. So how can we challenge this narrative that we must prove our worthiness and produce something which we deem as valuable, all the while maintaining a standard of perfection? How can we truly seek for these, seek after this goodness? Put another way, how can we surrender our inclination to perform at the expense of being formed? At the expense of becoming more like Christ? This is a question that I've had to wrestle through a lot over the last couple of years. As I've come to terms with my tendency to measure my self-worth according to what I do, not who I am. For as long as I can remember, I have known that the truth, I have known the truth that God loves me unconditionally. And that no mistake I can make or milestone I can achieve will ever alter God's love for me. However, this knowledge was mostly intellectual. And so more often than not, it seemed powerless to quiet my heart's cries for deeper intimacy and a greater sense of belonging. As these cries got louder, I turned to what I thought would be an effective and good antidote for the internal raucous ravaging my heart. If I could just prove my worth to others, that would guarantee that I would receive the love that I so desperately desired. Unfortunately, this compulsion to prove myself, despite appearing to be a good way to deal with this, took far more than I bargained for. It was not good. In fact, it was horribly toxic. And it wasn't long before I found myself trapped in a lifestyle of performance, productivity, and perfectionism, all of which sapped the life out of me. 
I oftentimes would work myself to the bone because I had to ensure that there was no mistake that had been left unnoticed, no issue left unresolved. I could not rest. Rest was an impossibility because I feared the point at which I ceased to work, I ceased to keep trying to keep proving that my entire world would come crashing down. If you think of it like a musician, my brother and um, my husband and I, we went and watched Hamilton this last week. It's a musical that's showing downtown. And it's live music the whole way through the show. If one of the musicians decided during that performance to just stop, sorry, the, the guy blowing the trumpet, he needed a break, he needed to breathe or whatever, he was like, no, I'm not doing this anymore. That would interrupt the entire performance and it would cause a massive issue. And because I had turned my life into a performance, I couldn't rest, I couldn't stop, because I was so scared that when I stopped, everything would just fall apart. The show had to go on. Additionally, there was very little room for Christ-like formation, because I prioritized projecting a flawless image of myself. I was so scared of people seeing the weaknesses that lurked beneath the surface that I just projected strength in order to hide that, in order to compensate for that. My priority was hiding the parts of myself which I believed were not good instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to work in and through me in order to create something good in me, to conform me to the image of Christ. Doing this was often to the detriment of my emotional and spiritual health, because although my weary body and my wounded heart continued to cry out for the soothing ointments of acceptance, intimacy, and belonging, I insisted that I would be better off treating my own wounds than allow somebody else, including God himself, to help me deal with these wounds. Perhaps you can relate to this. Perhaps you have known the longing for love and belonging, and you've sought to satisfy it by doing more and doing better. Perhaps there is something you find yourself wrestling with in this season, which is causing you to live according to this false narrative of productivity and perfectionism. Or maybe a particular area in your life where you see this to be true. Whatever the case, I believe that God has something to say to us through Jesus' words in Matthew 11, 28 to 30. This is the counter-narrative to the story which we tell ourselves and others that we have to prove our worth and to earn God's love and to earn one another's love. It's easy to come up with 
a, a way of dealing with this by just saying we need to do more, we need to do it differently. And yes, we do need to do it differently. But how can we challenge a narrative of productivity and perfectionism, things that say you have to do more and do better and do perfectly with do more, do better at this, strive for perfection. Those things are good. We must strive for righteousness. But we have to find a counter-narrative that creates room for us to do that in freedom and in goodness, not operating from a place of toxicity, but from a place of goodness. And I believe that Jesus' words in Matthew 11 are one way that we can do this. Listen to them. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus invites us, regardless of how undone, frail, and weak we may feel, to come to him as we are. Such an invitation reminds us that there is no need for pretense when entering the presence of God. We can simply come, no matter the brokenness crippling us or the burdens burying us. More than simply inviting us to come, though, Jesus promises that we will experience rest for our souls because his yoke is easy. Most commentators think that this reference to yoke is actually a reference to the law. Jesus is saying the law that I am giving you, the instruction that I am giving you, the same instruction that we are to delight in. It's easy. It's light. It's not burdensome and heavy telling us that we must do this and that and not do this and not do that. Rather, his instruction marks a good way for us to follow because it leads to the blessing of rest. Do you see the counter-narrative? That instead of saying that we should do more and do better, we're saying, come as you are, regardless of how imperfect your situation is, your, the state of your heart, you must come and you will find rest. You don't have to do more. You can rest. It's here that we've come full circle. God, who is good, invites us to come as we are to participate in nurturing his goodness in our lives, in our congregation, our neighborhoods, and beyond. He grants us this beautiful gift of rest for our souls because the instruction which he has given us is not heavy, but it's light. 
and it empowers us to delight in his instruction, his instruction that is a way of cultivating the goodness that we are to cultivate in our churches. What a blessing this is, and what a blessed people we are. Not because our lives are carefree, but because we are cared for by God himself. Not because our lives are perfect, because, but because we're intimately known and loved by the one who is perfect. And not because we're capable of producing output that can be measured and is deemed valuable, but because we can rest in the truth that the work of reconciliation has already been done. And that there is nothing more that we need to do to deem ourselves worthy of receiving that love. Father, you are a good father. You are kind. You are gentle with us. Thank you that we can experience the blessing of your rest, that we can declare along with the psalmist, blessed is the one who nurtures goodness because they will be like a tree, a tree that is formed and grows, formed to reflect your goodness. And in spite of the seasons of hardship, You sustain us with your life-giving water. You are the living water, our living water. And so, God, we pray that you would come, allow your truth to settle into our hearts. Would we experience and encounter your rest in new and reviving ways, would you break our cultural captivity to productivity and perfectionism and performance? And would we seek after that which is real, that which is good, that which will sustain us and form us and draw us closer to you? We ask all these things in your loving and powerful name.